Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schwepp, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. And today we're speaking with Michael Noble, a researcher at the LMU in Munich in the School of Ancient Philosophy, working on the Heirs to Avicenna project, and a man who knows a thing or two about some very interesting Islamicate philosophy. Michael, great to see you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. Now, you've written a book, which was the occasion for this invitation. It's just come out with De Grauter or De Grauter, we can't decide how it's pronounced, uh, Philosophizing the Occult, Avicenna in Psychology and the Hidden Secret of Fakhreddin Arrazi. Now, this book, Fakhreddin Arrazi's, well, his work, let's say, his work is incredibly important in Sunni Islam. He's considered a legit current Sunni authority to this day. So you might describe him as a mainstream figure in Sunni Islam. And he wrote a really, really interesting book, which we can only describe as a work of astral addressative magic. So uh, a lot of people are going to think that's impossible or, or bizarre or strangely incongruous, but it remains the fact. Who is Arrazi, first of all? Can you tell us about the guy? He was born on 1149 in a place called Rey, which is uh, kind of uh, 70 miles kind of um, north of uh, modern-day Tehran in Iran. Um, and on the point, he learnt um, theology uh, from his um, father, uh, Boya Uddin, um, who was an accomplished theologian in his own right. Um, and he spent much of his youth um, seeking patronage, which is important because I think that one of the reasons that he wrote the Silver Maktoum was precisely to gain patronage because uh, the political authorities of the time were interested in the technology that he describes. Um, as for his importance, he's, he's known as the renewer of, of the faith of his century, um, according to the prophetic tradition at the, at the beginning of each um, Islamic century, there will be a renewer of the faith who will reinvigorate it um, as people interpret it um, intellectually and spiritually and what have you. And he was retrospectively uh, understood as being the renewer of the faith of, of his century. Um, now, he uh, spent much of his early years um, wandering around in Transoxania uh, seeking patronage. But before that, he studied uh, philosophy with a mysterious figure called Mejduddin al-Jili in Maragha. And uh, we don't have any surviving works of Mejduddin al-Jili, but we do have a something that's called the Maragha Codex, which is a, a, a work which, which lists um, the various works that were studied uh, under Mejduddin al-Jili. Razi studied with Mejdin al-Jili with another very well-renowned figure in Islamic theology and philosophy, uh, Shihabuddin Suhrawardi, um, who also, as it happens, wrote a very well-known and much commented on work called Al-Waridat with Taqdisat, which comprises planetary prayers. Uh, but we can talk about Suhrawardi as, as, as a footnote later on. Let's, let's stick well, that I think Suhrawardi gets some episodes. That... I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. So I'll, I'll leave that to them. Rosie managed to gain patronage under two uh, rival dynasties in Central Asia, the, the Ghurids and the Khwarazm Shahs, um, which is a remarkable feat indeed, given the fact that there was huge animosity between them. He is most well-known for his critique of Avicenna, who dies in 1037 of the Common Era, uh, the great exponent, systematizer, and original philosopher of the neoplatonizing peripatetic tradition. Avicenna's philosophy was unique in the tradition of, of Islamic philosophy at the time, insofar as it, it was so systematizing and presented such a comprehensive scientific view of reality that it demanded either assent or rejection, or at the very least critique from other streams of Islamic thought as represented by other different schools of theology. So you couldn't ignore which, him, basically. Who couldn't ignore him, 
of which Razi was, was a major exponent, namely of the Eshari um, school of theology. And they had a very, they had a, a number of bones of contention with Avicenna and those who followed Avicenna. So, so Razi initially in his career was critiquing Avicenna on these, uh, on these points of contention that his school of theology had with Avicenna. But ultimately his grand plan was to uh, make Avicenna philosophy subject itself to the, those imperatives in Eshari theology, which would admit of no compromise. So he's um, trying to save Avicenna rather than kill him. Is that right? Like he's trying to keep the good stuff and get rid of the, the bad prophetology, the, the other things that he finds inadmissible. Would you say right. that's a fair assessment? That's, that's a fair assessment. So let me just kind of to explain the basics, obviously, right? So mm-hmm. these are all observant Muslims. And their theologies and their philosophies um, appear and flourish in an Islamicate context. And that Islamicate context had two uh, adamantine affirmations. Namely, there is no God but God, um, who is absolutely unique and transcendent uh, and absolute unity. And uh, that nothing else deserves is deserving of worship other than God. And that uh, Muhammad is his final prophet and messenger. Now, there are certain aspects to Avicenna philosophy, which certain theologians, like those from the Eshari school, felt brought into question or threatened their understanding of that Islamic declaration of faith. So, uh, for instance, the theologians took, to, took the Avicennas to task over God's knowledge of particulars. They took the Avicennas to task over whether or not the universe, the cosmos, is temporally originated or whether or not or whether it's eternal. Um, they took the Avicennas to task on the reality of the bodily resurrection. In fact, those three points are uh, the three points which Abu Hamid al-Ghazali who the famous Ghazali, yeah. um, who dies in 1111, took the absence to task in his famous work, the Habitul Philosophy, the Incomprehensibility of the of Philosophers. And, 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 and Razi carries that torch, but he, but he does it in a way that's far more comprehensive and systematic and uh, that Ghazali ever achieved in his lifetime. Eventually, Razi, so what Razi ends up doing, and there's a huge kind of generalization, but, but it's a convenient um, way of reading his works. What Razi ends up doing is that he writes theology in the tradition of the Eshari Kalam school. So using their, their methods of inquiry, their, their methods of influence in order to argue for the Eshari creed. So that's one genre of works. And another genre of works are works that adopt the, the methods of the philosophers. Right. right. And so what he does is that in those works, so famously, for instance, like Al-Mabahat Al-Mashriqiyah, the, the Eastern Investigations, he uh, examines philosophy and uh, examines Avicenna doctrines using the, the, the methods of inquiry of the philosophers and evaluates whether or not their doctrines are defensible on their own terms and uh, sifts them out from those which are defensible on their terms. Right. He doesn't give the, the Eshelis, his own theological schools, an easy time either. So he takes them to task uh, as well for defending Eshari doctrines uh, or points of belief in ways that are weak or indefensible by way of reason. Right. So he's not a, he's not a gratuitous defender of the Eshari school and uh, an indefatigable critic of Abyssinism. He subjects both to his severe criticism, for which he develops a, a fierce reputation. His ultimate, his ultimate aim is, is essentially to, to bring them together, subordinating what is true of Avicennism to the imperatives of Eshari theology that he's defended in as an unimpeachable way as possible. So he would be consi- you'd have to consider him a true philosopher by the definition of philosophy as sort of pursuing the truth through argumentation wherever it may lead, at least Indeed. to some degree. Maybe maybe modern university philosophers are not going to be convinced because he's a theistic and all this kind of stuff, but the dude... As was Avicenna. Yeah, of course. Uh, right. But the dude pulls no punches and he's willing to follow arguments and um, and get stuck in with, right. with arguments. Now, let's just mention one great work of his, the Mefatih... Al-Ghaib, and I think this is very interesting for a number of reasons. It's 
it's a work of tafsir, so it's a it's in the genre of Quranic interpretation, which is an incredibly important genre within Islam because the Quran is very enigmatic, and so the way in which Islamic doctrine over the centuries is built and kind of flourishes and and expands is by these these works partly through these works of interpretation, where you take, a, for example, a, from a Meccan surah, a very, very short kind of enigmatic passage and, and expand on what it means and all its different levels of meaning. Now, right. this work is, I think, the, the sort of largest tafsir ever written, right? It's huge. Right, right. But the title tells us something very interesting. It's the keys to the unseen. And this, this word ghaib is... It's very common in a Sufi context to refer to all the different levels of reality that are not immediately available to the senses. Um, right. The invisible worlds people sometimes talk about. But also, in the, especially in the, the context of a textual exegesis, it seems to me that it can have an element of just unveiling hidden meanings, right? It's a kind of work of excavating esoteric meanings from the Quranic text. So the fact that this work is a kind of central document of Sunni exegesis, still being read today by imams all over the world and by thinkers and, and Muslims and readers, and it's kind of positioned as a, an unveiling of esoteric truths is very, very interesting, right? right. So we shouldn't think that just because he's an Ashari um, theologian and a Sunni and that there isn't anything kind of esoteric going on. And that the esoteric can't be mainstream. That's what I'm saying. Like this, this is mainstream esotericism within Sunni Islam. But let's talk about uh, the hidden secret, Asir Amaktum, a very, very interesting work of Razi's. You, you think this work is by Razi, which some people have said it isn't. And you think it's kind of early in his oeuvre. So tell us why you think it's by him and why you date it where you date it. Well, personally... If I, if I address the question of why uh, people say he didn't write it and yeah. why people say he did write it. So uh, those uh, Islamic scholars throughout the centuries who denied his authorship um, couldn't get their heads around the fact that a, th- a theologian, philosopher, Quranic commentator as Augustus Fakhrid Nawazi would write a work like this. Why? Could they not believe it? It's because the work is not polemical in any way. It's not. It's not destructive. It merely presents the material, and that's all. And that's and that's what it claims that it sets out to do in the introduction. Uh, Razi in the, in the introduction says, "I'm going to present here um, what has come down to me of what I have read of of the talismanic craft," and he. Uh, and he, and he, he gives a disclaimer. He says, uh, and I report this, whilst disavowing everything that offends the religion, right? And there's some, there's some uh, uh, pretty uh, offensive stuff to the religion as, as far as the religion is concerned, right? Uh, but he, dis- he disavows any advocacy, of such practices and, and such beliefs. So right? we can maybe come so, back to that disclaimer later on because it, oh, it, it's very interesting um, and it, it seems just a sensible thing to chuck at the beginning of a work like this. It can't hurt to have that little disclaimer at the beginning. Right. Um, so, so the question is, is he, is he being genuine in giving a disclaimer or is, he, is, it, is this a nod and a wink mm. by a Muslim theologian who is secretly some kind of crypto-talismanic wizard? Right, who invokes planets and does all sorts of uh, unspeakable rituals. Right, that, so that, that's the big question, right? Um, now, there are numerous references in his works that we know he wrote to Asir al-Maktoum, uh, The Hidden Secret, as one of his own works. Right. right? Like, for instance, in Sharh al-Ayun al-Hikmah, his, his, his commentary on a uh, work by Avicenna, his work Al-Mulakhas fil-Hikmah, the the concise word on wisdom or philosophy, uh, and also his Sharh al-Isharat, the uh, commentary on the Isharat with Tanbihat, the philosophical allusions and admonitions written by Avicenna. Yeah. Now, we know 
that he did write a work called Civil Capital, we know what its subject material was about. And we also know that of the manuscripts that, that I've looked at, the earliest full manuscript that I've uh, that I worked with dates to 10 years, or the colophon uh, indicates that it was written 10 years after his death, right? So, so it's very early, very early. But not only, not only that, in the Cyril Mechtum itself, uh, there are passages in which Razi attempts his, or let's say the author, attempts um, his own theory of this talismanic craft. So discussing aspects of cosmology, aspects of psychology, theories of perception, internal sense faculty theory, for instance, which are so close to what we know he wrote. For instance, passages in Sharh al-Sharat, passages in another work that, that he wrote, Al-Matalib al-Aliya, the sublime theses of the divine science, which he wrote at the end of his career, right? Um, which is a huge philosophical, theological summa of, of his thought. There are passages in the Silmatum which are so close to passages we find in, in these other work. And, and the style, the general style of uh, of the Silmatum as well, given, given into account, I think it's safely attributable to Razi. Right. Um, now, those, so, so those who, who disputed whether or not he wrote it didn't read it closely enough, in right. my view. Or maybe they just couldn't get their heads around the Why idea. he wrote it. The idea right. that that the great Razi could have written a work like this. Um, right. In after this, I want to ask you about what's in the work, and then it may be clear to our listeners with any idea about Sunni mainstream debates about the truth why this would have been so objectionable. But it, one could also theorize that maybe some theologians, at least, kind of thought Razi did write it, but they just denied that he wrote it because they want to protect his reputation. Um, and that could even be for genuine kind of legitimate reasons of esotericism. Like we know Razi wrote this work, but it's not for the many. It's it's definitely a work that's dangerous. It shouldn't be just like bruited about. So we're just going to kind of say he didn't write it because most people need to just read his tafsir. And that's enough to be getting on with. Right. Speculative, but you could yeah. imagine that happening. So you argue that he wrote it. I think it's safe to say from your analysis that if he didn't write it, you have to posit that it's written by someone who's trying to write in the style of Razi, <laughs> trying to fill, say, say he wrote a different work called Sira Maktoum that he refers to in his other books. That they're, they're, that was suppressed. That was suppressed. And then there's someone else is writing another work under that title and under the pseudonym of Razi and doing their best to mimic his style and everything, which is a, a real stretch. And after the date of 1209, which is when he writes his final volume of Al-Makalib al-Aliya, because there are, there are passages in Sulamaktum which he, he can, which are to be found in Al-Makalib al-Aliya. So, yeah, it, this, would have, this would have been an individual of immense resources and a lot of time on his hands. Right. Um, <laughs> now, this book is amazing. In your book, Philosophizing the Occult, you give a translation at the end, into English, of the book, the Sira Maktum. The, the, of the a particular section of the book. Yeah, the ritual. It's not long. It's fascinating. Um, it's kind of mind-blowing, actually. And it's... <sighs> scholars of magic will find this very, very interesting because it's some form of addressative ritual. And it's addressative ritual to get stuff done, to make things happen. But scholars of religion are going to find it really interesting as well. And even scholars of history of science. It's, it's a work that is really hard to categorize, which is maybe one of the reasons it's been shunted aside in intellectual history till now. Mm. But he presents it, as you said, he presents it as, this is what's come down to me. I'm just reporting what I've heard. And I'm re reporting the doctrines of the Sabians. So who are they? The, Sabi the, the, the Sabians were a historical community based in Harran that represented the last vestiges of, of Near Eastern uh, astrolatrous religion. Now, there is a, a question as to whether or not they were, I mean, the, the likelihood is that they were, they, they played a significant role in the, in the Greek-Arabic uh, uh, transmission. Uh, so you had uh, prominent members of their community like Thabit uh, bin Qurra, um, who uh, transmitted and uh, translated from Greek material in, into Arabic in service of the Abbasid Caliphate. Um, now, they're an interesting anomaly because um, uh, they 
are not at first um, uh, blush uh, a, uh, a community of um, people who believed in, 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 uh, in the oneness of God and, uh, and believed in, in prophethood in the Judeo-Christian-Islamic broad, broadly speaking, uh, tradition. But then nevertheless, they were uh, tolerated under Abbasid rule because they were, they, were, they were useful. I mean, these guys knew how to translate scientific works of incredible uh, use uh, from Greek and translate them into, into Arabic. They were uh, Syriac uh, speakers. Now, whatever the um, historical details of this community and their history, by the time we come get to Razi, uh, so so Razi born in 1149, kind of dies in 1210. I should have given those dates at the beginning, shouldn't I? But um, they become a, a construct, a construct uh, that refers to any learned pagan culture that was rooted in knowledge of the heavens, uh, had knowledge of astronomy, astrology, uh, and that had uh, astrolatrous practices at the, at the center of their worship. So they could refer specifically to the community of Haran that were involved in the Greco-Arabic transmission project in the, in the uh, early Abbasid times. But the, by the time of Razi and, and brought for him another theologian called the they had expanded to come to refer to any learned pagan culture that was steeped in astrology and, uh, and philosophy. So the Chinese, the Greeks, the Indians, indeed any learned pagan culture. Now, Razi, he sets out three distinct groups of Sabi'a, right? Now, we know that he, he's, he's not actually picking up a book of Sabian theology anywhere, right? In fact, he says in Nehid al one of his uh, earlier kind of kalam or theology works, he says, I, I haven't actually read a book on their doctrines per se. So, so what he lists as these three groups that, rep, that uh, represent three different theological positions this is a product of his own kind of theological reasoning. Now, the three positions that he outlines in Sil Maktoum are as follows. One group believes that the planets represent no, multiple necessarily existent beings, which have causal efficacy in the, in the sublunary world. Another group believes that there is only one necessarily existent being, namely God, and that the cosmos is essentially a product of an emanative process, ultimately a divine self-contemplation. And another group that believes that the cosmos comes about through God's creative act, but that its governance was then delegated to the seven heavenly bodies. Right. right? Um, so those are broadly the three different kind of categories of, of Sabians that he asserts practice the talismanic craft which he describes in a silver metal and it's important for Razi because Razi is ultimately a theologian right so and he's his task uh, is an interesting one because it's quite in in my view my reading of a silver it is predicated on, on on the question well why did he write it right why, why did he write this work and I argue that the reason why he wrote it is that Razi believed that the talismanic craft was real. It had real effects in the world, right? So the question is um, how and why, and how do we square how, that with Islam? How and why can you square that with Islam? What about this big uh, question about secondary causality, right? So because he is an Eshavi theologian, he believes that God is qadir ala kulli shayn, that God's uh, power extends to all things, right? right? And that God's intervention uh, directly touches on, on, on each event, each change, each decomposition, each generation, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right? So how can you square that with, uh, with secondary causality, right? So so um, to, just to contextualize that a little more, the question would be some, and this, is, this goes back to the thing you mentioned earlier about um, knowledge of particulars. Does God create a beautiful mechanism and then set it running and then kind of retire and let the mechanism deal with the details, yeah. right? Um, so he's not, for example, he doesn't know every little thing that happens in the dunya, in the world, because that's below him. He just creates his governors, his angels, and his planetary spirits and whatnot, and they deal with the details. God is dealing with, perhaps, forms. He's dealing with the ultimate realities. That's one take on this thing. You know, when Plato's Timaeus collides with 
the Abrahamic creation account, you always have these debates. Um, then sure. another take might be the, the Ashari one, where God is just literally the cause of everything that happens on a detailed, fine-grained analysis. And you might then also, you have to come up with another way of talking about secondary causes where I can say that the reason the apple fell off the tree is first of all because Allah willed it, and secondly because of yeah, I don't know gravitation. If I'm a you know Newtonian thinker, so there's which they would re- which they would refer to as either or the empirical norm, right? Um, from the perspective of humans, from right. the perspective of God as the divinely mandated habit or custom that 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 is mandated for for the cosmos. Yeah. So the Sabians who go wrong are the ones who who have this emanatory cosmos, whereby the star deities, they, they're between us and God, and God is sort of um, did the initial work of creation and doesn't deal with the, the day-to-day managing of the whole cosmos. That's delegated yeah, I, to the star gods. Sure. And also the, those Sabians, you say that there are multiple necessarily existent yeah. gods, essentially. Mm. He, doesn't, he doesn't really bother with them, because there is a section in Cinematum where he ref, where he refutes the Sabians. He's, it's entitled Concerning the Weakness of the Sabian Religion. He, notice he, he doesn't, he, he, he speaks about weakness, mm. right? The philosophical weakness of their religion, right? He doesn't even bother about, he doesn't even bother with the, those who believe in multiple necessarily existence because they're not a problem for him they're easily refutable doesn't want to kind of waste waste ink on them he he, he attacks the kind of emanationist sabians who are closer to the what razi understands as being the avicenan god right right and the third group of sabians who believe that God is not an emanationist god he is he's a choosing he's a volitional agent he's uh, he's a right but he nevertheless delegated running the cosmos to these various kind of planetary angels and and, and what have you because for Razi God's power means that it must extend to all things mm. right so so in reality all three groups are an error of varying degrees right now there's that's the theory side of things that's our um the different positions that he presents himself as addressing on the theoretical side. But on the practical side, he's engaging with what I think is a fairly reasonably standard tradition of practical astral talismanic ritual. Right. So this is what the, the Sabians do. And boy, do they do some interesting stuff. So sure. this is especially interesting to us as scholars of, let's say, the history of addressative ritual, because there's so much rich theoretical background here so it's not just a a grimoire it's a a deeply uh, philosophically informed um, work of an ilk that you wouldn't see in the latinate world until people like Ficino hit the scene and start you know talking about magia but in terms of like you know integrating with a whole metaphysical schema right so this is this is going on here much much earlier what is the practice can you tell us about the ritual and the, I mean, you you talk in your book about the self-talismanization of the practitioner. So he right. does talk about making rings and images or um, idols, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but he also talks about kind of a, some kind of transformative process whereby the person doing the ritual is going to become a kind of universal perfected human being and therefore able to command reality in the in the sublunary world right discuss so, uh, so talisman so what for razi is talisman uh it's got two senses um the first and most important sense is 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 how he defines it on a theoretical level and he defines talisman as the blending of active celestial forces into passive earthly forces to bring about that which uh, runs contrary to the empirical norm or prevents that which would normally concord with it. Right? Now, interestingly, I think it's in the Sharh al-Sharat, he expands on this definition of Sir al-Maktoum. So Sharh al-Sharat is a work that he writes after Sir al-Maktoum. So the way in which he expands on his definition is uh, is a development of his thought about uh, talismanic craft. And he says, 
He says this, the talismanic process is the means by which uh, active heavenly forces uh, are blended with um, earthly passive forces to bring about that which uh, runs contrary to the empirical norm, but by means of active earthly forces, right? So in the first definition, we have three items mentioned, let's say, for the sake of simplicity, active heavenly forces, earthly passive forces, and then the changing of uh, what would normally be concordant with the empirical norm. In the latter definition, in the Sharh al-Sharat, which is a development of his idea in Silmatum, the hidden secret, there are four things, active celestial forces and heavenly forces, earthly passive forces, the breaking of the empirical norm, but, but this blending is affected by active earthly forces. Now, these active earthly forces are the human soul. Right. Right. And this is what leads him to his exploration of the powers of the human soul to do this, right? Um, and 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 it's it's his cause for uh, looking to Avicenna's internal sense psychology in order to account for how this is achieved. So that's the theoretical definition of the talisman. The actual practical talisman is an idol or a ring. So the proper astrological timing, performing rituals, fumigations, ritual diet, uh, ritual clothing, et cetera, et cetera. The, the practitioner connects with an operative planet and brings down its forces into an idol or a ring, okay? So that, that, that's one sense on, uh, in which it's used on, on the practical level. But the other sense in which it's used is that the, ob- the very object which you bring these celestial forces down into on the sublunary level is the practitioner's person itself, right? So the person himself becomes the talisman, right? It's not an idol or a ring, it's your own very person, right? Uh, and this is the basis of uh, what I call the planetary uh, ascent ritual. It's, and, and it's the most elaborate ritual that's that's described in the Silmatorum, right? And it takes place over... Uh, several years, and it's the means by which the practitioner brings under his or her command the powers of the seven heavenly bodies and knowledge as well. And by the end of this very long ritual involving, as I said, some fumigation, ritual diet, um, kind of, uh, planetary prayers, etc., etc., and ritual acts. Uh, for instance, the the ritual acts in the, in the Venus and the Mars ritual, right, stand out for their for their um, uh, colourful detail. Um, we can get get onto that later. At at the end of each stage, you bring each of the seven uh, planets in, in the Ptolemaic order under one's command. So at the end of it, it is said that, or it's written in the that that the, that the that the planets submit humbly to one's will. So you're going. Sequentially, first you have to deal with the moon. Then, once you've dealt with the moon, the moon then becomes your helper to move on to the right. next level. So you're you're subduing each planet as you go along, and each one then right. becomes part of your team. Now, what are these planetary spirits? These ruhaniyat, and let's talk a little bit about the the ba'atam because right. there may be a kind of presence of the practitioner already in the higher realm that you're trying to then kind of identify with, right? Like a kind of divine right. double. So first of right. all, Ruhaniyat. We're familiar with this already on the Shweb, but let's just talk about how he conceives of these beings. Um, the cosmos is a, is a plenitude of Ruhaniyat, I mean, each of which kind of, in, 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 which inhabit the, the seven uh, heavenly spheres, and each uh, degree of the uh, spheres has its own Ruhaniyat or kind of spiritual being. Now, I should say, at the beginning of the ritual, and this is very important, before one can begin it, you need to uh, have a noetic connection with a very specific ruhaniya, right? A very specific uh, spiritual being, which is, as you mentioned, the tabarat term, or the perfect nature. Now, the perfect nature is referred to as the heavenly father, or one's own personal heavenly father, right? Um, and it is a uh, celestial spirit associated with a particular heavenly body um, which represents your metaphysical source right it's your cause right. you are merely its effect mm. right and the the, the, the term doctrine understands humanity 
not as the unity, not as a, a unity in species. Right? So, so for Avicenna, by way of contrast, humanity is a, is a unity in species, right? So all human souls essentially uh, are, are one in species. But in the, to that term, doctrine, essential difference divides humanity. Right. So humanity is divided among different kalaif or, or groups or classes, as we were, right? right. Each group of, of, of human souls derives from a particular pibar term mm. or perfect nature. And this spirit presides over the instruction, the guidance and general spiritual welfare of each member of the class or group of, of human beings that finds its source in it. Right. Now, if can I just interject with a little bit of irresponsible comparative work? This reminds me of Ceteris Parbus exactly Proclus's theory of the Sera, the divine Sera. So Proclus himself, for example, was in the, the chain, the Sera of uh, Hermes. And so Hermes, this actual noetic god, has a chain of anterior, uh, sorry, posterior causes stretching all the way down via the stars to the lower materialized world, but the human beings are divided up into kind of tribes based on which god they descend from. Right. Um, and there's, uh, if it's going through the astral realm, there's going to be um, astral, astrological even influences at play in the chain that, you know, sort of will affect your own astrological situation. Um, so this seems like whether because of a transmission of an idea or whether because the same or similar idea sort of arose spontaneously within an Islamic context, I don't know, but it seems like a very, very similar doctrine. And in both cases, the human being has a sort of higher self that they want to return to and identify with as potentially a major important stage on the road to returning to God. It might also be worth pointing out that in this case, this is a major difference, a theological difference with... Um, Ibn Sina, and it has it has prophetological implications, right. right? Because if humans are fundamentally a class, like in Greek, you would say, you know, if there's a platonic form of anthropos that we all participate in, and that makes us all one thing, that would mean that um, prophets and messengers, who in the Islamic take on Abrahamic faith, are special. They're like a different breed, right? They're not a different breed. Everyone's the same breed. They're just have especially developed faculties. This would be like Ibn Sina's take on prophetology. Right. And so um, Razi saying, no, no, no. They're a separate breed. They And in fact, they're, well, maybe when I ask you some irresponsible questions later on, I could ask you about who you think might be the, um, the higher perfect nature of some very exalted Islamic prophetological figures, which uh, is something Razi might be hinting at. But I'll just leave that as a, a little tantalizing question mark for the moment. So we have this about um, the, the perfect nature, and we want to somehow make a connection with this being. Right. And that's preliminary to doing the whole planetary scent ritual. Is that right? right. You have to do that first. You've got to do that first. And it, it needs to be a stabilized connection. And he, he refers to ways in which one can infer the heavenly body with which your own personal term is associated through reading the your own natal chart. Right. He doesn't give the details of that. I'd imagine the method would be somewhat similar uh, to that um, which Dorian Greenbaum describes in her uh, in her in her well-known monograph on the, on, on, on the personal diamond and, and Hellenistic astrology. Now, failing that, uh, one can also uh, establish a connection with the Tibet term through sheer force of spiritual discipline. So we're talking about kind of like constant prayer, fasting, um, real ascesis, such that um, the bonds of the soul with the body are somewhat loosened, right? Mm. And the intention, the, the purpose behind such, such extreme uh, ascesis is to... Um, generate a, a vision of the Tavara term, which he described as being experienced in a hypnagogic state, so kind of between sleep and, and wakefulness. Our favorite state um, here at the Schweb. Right. Taking us right, right back to the hermetic poimandris and perhaps further. Now, 
you've just well, well, sorry, well, I, should, I should say why is that important actually it's because all of these planets get on with each other and Mars doesn't like Venus and Venus doesn't like Mars right, right? and so some little planets may be somewhat annoyed at the fact that you establish a relationship with say Venus I and mean, Mars may be not too happy about that right um, and also uh, it's such a long ritual and it's so arduous and it takes so much time and mental energy and it's protracted over a of many many years right and um, you're bound to get something wrong right and that may annoy one of the planets so the Tibur term mediates between you and planets that are somewhat annoyed with you right, right? but also what it does is that uh, it can guide you as to how you can make better your approach to the planets or how you can perform the ritual better it's so it's a constant kind of stream of guidance and, and instruction it's a kind of like psychopomp or um, teacher along along the way. Yeah. Um, because, you, you're, because you're about to make mistakes. Let's talk a little bit about the faculty by which all this is happening, the Wahm. Does Ibn Sina kind of invent this faculty? It's, uh, the Wahm is essentially a, a, an Avicen internal sense faculty, and it's an innovation on the whole kind of Aristotelian system of, of internal sense faculties. And so the importance of Wahm, you will find lies in its facility or its use in, in accounting for how the human soul might bring knowledge of universals and into dialogue with a perception of particulars. Right? The soul is immaterial. I should uh, make it clear that um, Avicenna accepts um, the Aristotelian idea of internal sense faculties that are rooted in the physical reality of the brain, the three, what was understood as the three ventricles, the three kind of cavities in the brain, right? Yeah. And they they sit in, in, in the pneuma, or, or the ruh in the the Arabic, which is contained in, the, in these ventricles. It's um, a fascinating blend between immaterialist psychology and, and a really embodied, almost like epiphenomenological take on human... Right. Psychology. Right, right, exactly. So, so, so you've got the common sense, right? So you've got all this, you've got, you've got sensory input, they come into the common sense, and the, it's the common sense that constructs them into an integrated experience of external sensible reality. Right. right. It creates the movie. It's like the it's like the editor who who takes all the different right. the soundtrack and the video and everything and puts it all together into one final cut. Right. right. And these percepts are loosely described as as sur or forms in Arabic, right? Now, these can be stored in a memory faculty, but they're not the only percepts that can be apprehended by the human soul that comes in from extramental reality. There's also another thing called ma'ani or intentions, the Latin translators, the Latin translators of, of, of Avicenna trans, translated as intentiones. And intentions are very interesting, especially when you pay close attention to the examples that Avicenna uses to illustrate precisely what an intention or a manner is. One of the examples he gives is, uh, is the following. When a sheep encounters a wolf, even though it's never encountered a wolf, uh, any point in its life, the sheep can perceive. They refer to hostility, but I think it should kind of more aptly be called um, predatorial intent, right? So threat, uh, basically the threat, the threat of the threat of the uh, of the wolf, right? Mm. Um, so the wham is now, like is like this faculty that allows us to add extra and very essential uh, layer of interpretation to our sense data, which is like, okay, I see this you know, gray creature, I hear it growling, I can maybe smell it. What does that tell me? Oh, it tells me I need to run because it's going to try to eat me, right? That's where the Wahm comes in and, and says, that's a threat, get out of here. Right, but but more, more, more precisely, these intentions on Ma'ani, they're ontologically distinct from physical forms, right? They're not merely the product of interpretation. It's interesting because they've got a kind of a, a, a intermediate status. They sort of right? exist, they kind of exist extramentally, right? Mm. And it's with the worm that you can understand them, right? That, 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 that you can perceive and apprehend them, right? right? And this brings us to what I really wanted to ask you about in terms of the worm as, as seen in the context of this ascent ritual by and, mm. and talismanic magic more generally by uh, right. Razi. Because in 
razi, it becomes this faculty, which I almost want to translate as sort of willpower or just force of the soul's power to, to create change. It affects the body, but he extends this. He says, if it can affect the body, why can't it affect the sublunary realm more generally? Right. So basically, someone who has developed this faculty to a high degree can just make stuff happen with their mind. Right. So what he's doing in Silmaktum is that he's trying to construct a theory of how this talismanic craft works. And in order to do that, he needs to use the intellectual tools at his disposal. And the most advanced psychology, because we're talking about the blending of uh, celestial forces with, uh, with earthly passive forces by means of the human soul, the most advanced psychology he has at his disposal is that of Avicenna, right? We can't necessarily assume that Razi himself gives full assent to this psychology, right? All he's merely doing in Selimaktum is constructing a theory, a plausible theory as to how, as, as to how this can work. And in order to do that, he avails himself of Avicenna psychology. Now, the uh, Waham is is important precisely because it mercurially mediates between the physical and material worlds, right? right? And it can affect the human body. So it can the imagination can't work by itself, right? In in waking hours. This is this is where your point about the will becomes important. The imagination can work either under the under the influence of the Waham. Or it can work autonomously, and it gives certain circumstances where, where it work, works autom- autonomously when it's not under the control of the wehem. It's like an engine that can match forms with intentions it, which are stored in, 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 a, in a different, in a distinct, two different memory stores. It can match them together and produce images of, say, a ghoul or uh, a demon or a friend or what have you, right? But it, uh, when it's acting um, autonomously. It's more affected by the temperamental humans, right? Right. By, by the temperament. The Wehem, however, can actually uh, seize control of the imagination and decide to construct of its own volition, uh, for want of a better term. Wehem is also uh, interesting because, and, and, and this is where the theory of, as to how celestial forces can be brought into, uh, can be blended into an, an earthly passive force or a talisman of the person practitioner himself. The Waham is the faculty uh, that Avicenna identifies as being the one which is receptive to traces from the celestial world, right? So in a dream state, when there are no external, there, there's no external sense data input into the common sense, right? The soul becomes receptive to traces that, that come from the celestial realm, right? Right. Now, so veridical dreams explained. Veridical dreams explained. Now, what, what's interesting about the Avicenna account, of which Razi avails himself, is that it accounts for veridical dreams in a way that explains how they can be subjective, informed by culture and belief and ex- personal experience and what have you, but nevertheless remain extramental. They're caused extramentally. Right. So, so what you receive from the celestial realm right, is then taken by the Waham, and then, then the Waham sets about instructing the imagination to construct a dream experience that matches that original celestial trace. So it's both subjective and objective. Not, but not, not only can it, does, it, does it function on this purely kind of cognitive level, it can also affect the, phys- the physical world. And as you said, it can affect uh, the body of the subject, but, it, but if it can affect the body of the subject, Avicenna reasons, and, and Razi develops this, this theory, it can also affect bodies outside of the subject. It can affect things at a distance. Boom. Magical efficacy, theorized, right. and located in powers of the soul. Right. In a kind of naturalistic account. Lovers of Ibn al-Arabi will want to be paying strict attention because these kinds of ideas, these kinds of ideas, both in terms of seeing visions of true reality, which are not from something you dreamt up, they're from outside of you, Mm. uh, which nevertheless take the form of dreamlike things that are relevant to the the person seeing them will become very important in like sort of later Sufism like that of Ibn Arabi and fascinating stuff. 
Now we've we've got our faculties. Obviously, this is an inadequate uh, account of these faculties, but thank you so much for laying it out as as you have. It's very complex stuff, and and way more research I think is needed on this material to try to get our heads around it, right? But so we've got an idea of the human subject, what what he's made up of. I'm going to call him a he because our authors pretty much call him a he, don't they? Right. But now he's got his waham focused. He's created this, what you call a noetic connection with his um, perfect celestial nature. He's primed and ready to get down to some planetary ascent and become the perfect kind of universal sage. So let's get into the, the amazing details of how this works. The actual ritual itself, because it's a stonker. It's amazing. Right. Um, so for, for each stage uh, of this long ritual, so the seven stages for each of the, for each of the planets, um, central to the ritual is an actual prayer, prayer with which you address the planets. Um, so already problematic for certain Ashari thinkers for whom a prayer to anything other than God is going to just be absolutely forbidden, right? Right, mm. right. Right, and also the, the what's contained in the prayer, you know, addressing the planet insofar as it has the power to affect certain things in the sublunary world, right? So, actually, the illusion, of course, it doesn't doesn't have any power of its own whatsoever. It's merely one aspect of Ada or the empirical norm, which is divinely mandated. Each stage of the ritual involves kind of a rigorous fasting, sacrifices of, of animals, uh, giving in, in, in the giving of charity of certain parts of certain animals that are associated with the planet that is to be addressed. And each stage extends over kind of differing uh, periods of time, varying periods of time. So, so the moon, for instance, it's sort of twelve or thirteen months, right? And, and you uh, have to begin these rituals at astrologically propitious times, right? So right. it gives instructions for figuring out when to start it and all this kind right. of the timing of everything. Right. And for the place in which the ritual is meant to be observed, so kind of near running water, for instance, for the, um, for the, for the lunar stage, wearing certain ceremonial clothing. And what's striking about the ritual is, is the intensity of the emotional relationship that you develop with, with each planet. At one stage, it describes um, that you have such an intense bond and passion and love for the moon that you weep when it's waning and rejoice when it's when it's waxing. And uh, he describes uh, the practitioner as addressing the moon uh, as a lover, right? Uh, and then there are also kind of shocking aspects to different stages of the ritual. So, for instance, the uh, Venus ritual in, involves uh, wearing kind of uh, certain ceremonial clothes, everyone's uh, and, and and holding a, a banquet for people that's to be held over three days, three nights. Wine is to be drunk. Love poetry is to be sung and recited. There are to be musicians there. Certain foods are meant to be consumed. And throughout this banquet, the practitioner is meant to um, engage in uh, sex with wine girls and wine boys for three consecutive days and nights. Right. And at the at, at the end of which, a sign that that Venus has been brought under one's will and that she's she's receptive to one's uh, orisons, is that um, uh, wine girls and wine boys approach you with consent and gladly, <laughs> as opposed to before when they were like, no, um, exactly. <laughs> so basically, um, when you've become truly irresistible and sexy, that means Venus right, is on your side. Right. Right. Mm. Then, then you know Venus is on your side, right? Um, there's, there's the whole thing about um, the breaking of different kind of social taboos and, and what have you, um, as a way of somehow shocking the, the, the consciousness into into opening itself up to this noetic connection with the, with, the, with Venus. Even more shocking than that is the fact that the Mars ritual involves beheading someone. Dressing in in a in a red woolen kind of cloak and a red conical um, hat, brandishing a, a sword that's covered in the blood of the man who you just whose head you've just severed, um, and feeding people from the flesh of the head, of the human head, right? Again, subjecting the uh, the, the practitioner's soul to um, traumas, 
right? Just as extreme ascesis is a trauma to the soul, and um, and uh, so is the the, the the committing of these uh, infractions of, of social norms a huge trauma to the soul, right? And so it uh, continues. So, I mean, obviously, before that is the ritual for the sun, which takes seven years, right? Um, and uh, and Jupiter are after, after Mars and then Saturn, and and Jupiter and Saturn are kind of they're, they're kind of um, afterthoughts, a, a bit pathetic. Yeah, <laughs> after the cannibalism, you know. <laughs> yeah, after the severed head and the cannibalism. Now, this is an incredible ritual. If people want to check out the details of it the best thing they can do is get your book. You've laid it out as a, an appendix, like a translation of this this ritual. So we've got this incredible book by Razi. We've talked about who the guy is, the context of his work, and among the things he writes, there's this one work which is extremely weird and stands out, which is this, this sort of study of talismanic addressative ritual, which has a kind of deep theoretical engagement with the going current up-to-date psychology of Ibn Sina uses that to explain how talismanic ritual can work but then also gives us a talismanic ritual with details of practice and stuff before we finish up I would love to ask you this question which you know is something you've had many years now to think about and I'm sure your thinking on it has flip-flopped and gone in all different directions but how do we interpret this this ritual, if we interpret it as something you're really supposed to do, you know, actually murder someone, actually have an orgy, etc., the problem then becomes it's it's almost impossible to do it because it's so long and it takes so much time and effort and resources and everything and discipline that it's almost impossible to imagine someone actually doing it. When people think of, you know, long-term magical rituals in a modern ceremonial magic context, they think of maybe the... Um, the holy guardian angel working from the golden dawn or something and that's considered like almost impossible to complete and that's that's just like a year that's nothing really compared to this this is this is like a full-time career you know right. what how do you interpret this Rosie kind of doesn't really kind of help us on this is is meant to be done literally uh, he doesn't even kind of raise that as a question it's, it's certainly a question that modern readers would ask themselves um what I haven't spoken about so much is the influence of Indic world on Razi's world, right? So Razi's operating in kind of, I mean, he's, he's buried in like in Herat in modern Afghanistan, right? And um, the Indic, the influence of, of the Indic world stretched, stretched far north. That is, that is at that time, that is uh, appreciated now. Um, and we know that Razi spent some time in India um, and debated what he refers to as Brahmin philosophers. We also know that he would have read and had access to Al-Biruni, uh, who's a contemporary of Avicenna, who wrote a, a fantastic work on the doctors of the people of India. Razi's theological kind of predecessor, Esheris Terni, writes an interesting work, uh, doxographical work, in which he spends a lot of time discussing the, the doctrines and practices of the Indians. The only way in which I can construe this um, ritual in light of the considerations that which you raise, and, and also given Razi's construction of it using Avicenna psychology, is that it can be best approached in a tantric in an in a tantric manner, such that it's an internalization of acts in the external world. Where it comes from, we don't know. Okay, whether or not it, uh, at some stage it was ever done in a literal sense, we can't possibly know. Like we, our sources don't allow us to to speculate on that. But uh, in the, the Indic sphere, rituals in, in tantric strands of thought were certainly internalized. And uh, this is one way of, of attempting to, to answer that very difficult question. But what I'm saying is entirely speculative and, uh, and we simply don't have the, the historical kind of data in order to, to arrive at any certain conclusion. We could enrich our speculation, let's say, by looking at, for example the 
so-called Mitras liturgie, and the the Ogdoad reveals the Ennead text from Nag Hammadi, which which are cosmic ascent texts. The uh, the Mithras liturgy is undeniably ritual. I would say it's got a definitely it's a, it's it's meant to be a kind of visionary ritual, a ritualized inducing of a vision. And um, the the text of the any the Ogdoad reveals the Ennead also kind of lends itself to that internalized ritual. Like your body is sitting in a room potentially with your hermetic master who's kind of leading you up but the cosmic forces are descending and you are actually going to have a you're going to go to the Ogduad the the eighth sphere but there's no implication that your body has done anything special it's still sat in the room with the master so this is this could be read as an internalized ascent ritual we have similar stuff in the hechelot material and then the rabbinic exegesis of that kind of ritual material in Judaism. So in our Western sphere, we also have evidence which can plausibly be read as cosmic ascent rituals, which are internalized or just internal full stop. This would make sense within the epistemology you've described, right? Playing with these images, or maybe, maybe playing isn't the right word, but having, so for example, if Mars appears to you and we should remember that in the iconography that we find around astral concerns in the Islamicate world, we actually have these ruhaniyat. They actually have kind of attributes. They, they you know, Mars will often appear holding a, a severed head, right. won't he? So they, just like with more iconographically rich traditions like the ancient Greeks, where gods have a way that they look, and if you see the Caduceus, you know it's Hermes, and if you see the Aegis, you know it's Athena, etc. These these planetary ruhaniyat have a have a look associated with them. Maybe they actually appear to you, right? Maybe you you visualize the the planetary spirit, and in doing so, by this psychology you've outlined, we can theorize how that visualization can actually be them appearing to you, right? Your imagination and plus wham in action, once you've separated yourself from bodily inputs, can receive the transmission of Mars, for example, because it's not being distracted by the body. That could be a way of explaining all the kind of ascetic stuff leading up to this, these rituals, and also all the kind of focusing your mind type stuff which this text is so rich in. And then when you've achieved the right state of mind, Mars can really appear to you. Right, right. Um, and this is, uh, as, as you correctly point out, explains the, um, when, when it comes to Rosie kind of theorizing as to how this kind of thing works, why he draws Navasenan kind of internal sense psychology so much. I think that's, Although there's no explicit statement in, in the Simatum itself, I think the planetary ritual continues beyond Saturn. And it's to bring under one's will the lunar nodes, right? The hypothetical points which, uh, which demarcate the point where the, um, the path of the moon crosses the ecliptic, right? And they are uh, incredibly important in Indic in astrology, Rahu and Ketu, right? The, the images of the 360 degrees of a starless sphere are also given heavy uh, emphasis in a cinema to This two, is fascinating. Right? We didn't talk about this at all, but the, the um, neo-Aristotelian cosmos with which we're dealing has, of course, the sphere of the fixed stars, which is very important. But beyond right. that sphere is another sphere, which doesn't have anything you can see. Right. It's a sort of invisible, but it's incredibly important, incredibly powerful, invisible, stellar power body in fact it's the most powerful body it's the primo um, mobile right it's the, right. the source of the whole movement of the whole right and the images which he describes of the um, of the starless sphere which is so important for the craft of talisman making are attributed to Tumtum el Hindi Tumtum yeah. the Indian right also known as the, the Tumtumiyat genre and Razi describes how he kind of sought out multiple manuscripts of the Tumtumiyat, but apologizes to the reader in not being able to draw up a kind of a critical edition of them because the, the, the manuscripts that, that he had kind of access to differed somewhat, right? And But also one of the most striking passages describing the mental focus required for this planetary ascent 
ritual and totalism making in general, in which he describes uh, al-mufakkir, uh, which I translate in my book as the uh, as the meditator, who reaches what he calls in Arabic, and I haven't seen, I haven't come across this phrase any, anywhere else in the Arabic literature, who reaches Merkez al-Fikr, the center point of meditation. And when he reaches the center point of meditation, he can bring the elements under his control, right? To such an extent that um, he can summon rains, he can bring about earthquakes, etc., etc., right? Um, now, this very interesting passage is again attributed to Tumtum al-Hindi, right? So wh- wh- whether or not this is uh, fictitious, fictitious is irrelevant. There seems to be some kind of an Indian influence going on in the background. Certainly, uh, these kinds of practitioners that Raz seems to have in mind as a need to uh, somehow link these, uh, these rituals to. Michael, talking about how you think the ritual continues beyond the point that is explicitly laid out is wonderful because it brings us into, again, from to my mind, into this, this hermetic ascent literature where everyone who reads the Ogdoad reveals the Ennead speculates that seemingly you can go beyond the Ogdoad and the Ennead and maybe even go beyond that to the ultimate kind of unsayable godhead. But it's not made explicit in the text. And it seems like planetary ascent literature always likes to leave that open-ended final leap into the to the divine void at the end of it and that also gives us a perfect jumping off point from this episode so thank you very much for talking to us we'll we'll maybe leave things at that note of open-ended cosmic exploration and speculation yeah delightful speculation so stay esoteric thanks for having me (laughs) 